Welcome to the Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your host. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And today we're going to be doing book reviews, specifically on two books that was graciously sent to us by Lexham Press. And the books are The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism by Ben Myers, and The Lord's Prayer, A Guide of Praying to Our Father by Wesley Hill. So these are both in the Christian Essentials series, which as it says in the introduction, seeks to pass down tradition that matters. And so in the series are are short books. I think both of these are around 100 pages. uh, And all of these books explore various parts of the foundations of the ancient church, uh, the Ten Commandments, Baptism, Apostles' Creed, as we mentioned, Lord's Supper, and then the Lord's Prayer. Uh, these basics of the Christian life have, are the things that really have sustained and nurtured every generation of the faithful from the apostles to today. And I think what this Christian Essentials series is seeing is that there's, there's something of a new, renewed effort of catechesis and evangelization that needs to go on even within the church. And so I think we'll talk about it in a minute, but just off the get-go, these books kind of present these foundations in a, in a fresh perspective. And I think sometimes that's good, and sometimes we'll say, eh, maybe not so much. So you might be familiar with Lexham Press. They are the publishing company that's part of uh, Faith Life Corporation, who produces Logos Bible Software, every pastor and priest's best friend when trying to uh, amass resources and search them quickly. And... Uh, Wesley, you like Lexham Press, don't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're fastly becoming one of my favorite publishing companies. In fact, uh, early on in the show, I believe our very first guest was Dr. Scott Harrower, um, and he had his book um, published through Lexham, and that's kind of how started really reading uh, what they were producing. And they're they're producing a number of fine volumes. In fact, recently we talked to uh, Dr. Tim Perry, uh, who edited um, The Theology of Benedict XVI. Uh, that is also a Lexham Press book. So, um, you know, I think one of the things to note about Lexham, I mean, the, the content that they're producing is solid. But the other thing uh, is just how aesthetically pleasing these books are. Um, and this is true... I think of all the books that I've picked up from Lexham, the Dr. Um, Tim Perry book, The Theology of Benedict XVI, that book is remarkably beautiful. And these little volumes are really, really well done. Um, there's art pretty much at every chapter. And uh, yeah, it's just, I just find them to be fun to hold and to read. In fact, a few years ago, I um, listened to a podcast with the designer of Bibles from Crossway. And they were talking about how they really are intentional about designing beautiful Bibles because it makes you want to pick it up more. And I think Lexham Press is doing that for um, for really um, all their books that they're publishing. I mean, it's just aesthetically pleasing and it's nice. You walk around and you have this beautiful book and people think that uh, you are special because of it. And you are. <laughs> That's but right. let's talk about... Uh, let's not be whitewashed tombs. Let's talk about what's inside the book and see if it's worth, if the beauty inside matches the beauty on the outside. The medium is the message. The medium is the message. (laughs) All right. So I'm going to go first. I'm going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed, a guide to the ancient catechism by Ben Myers. Just some general observations about this book, as well as the other one. I, I think they both connect on this, the one by Wesley Hill that Father Wes will be talking about. I think the first thing to say from the get-go is that the target audience of these books is obviously post-Christian culture. 
mm-hmm. which makes sense. As I just said a minute ago, I think they're trying to renew an evangelism or renew a catechesis approach and speak the lingo of the culture. And so there's a lot of winsome defenses of the historic faith in these books, uh, while also appealing to what I would call modern concerns. I mean, think of having a conversation with a 20 or 30 something about the faith. You're going to have to talk about things like equality, environmentalism, social justice. And so these books weave in modern concerns while staying firmly orthodox in the faith. Now, I think there are a few places, particularly in Wesley Hill's book, and I know, Father Wes, you're, you'll touch on this, but I think that they can, he can sometimes push the border a little bit in these conversations, meaning I think it's obvious that someone like Wesley Hill, he is situated in a progressive tr- Christian denomination, though him, he himself would not claim that as, as a progressive Christian, but I think sometimes it, it can come over and I see uh, the influence of his tradition in what he's writing. But even still, even still, I, fa- I actually found the books really refreshing in their application of the historic faith. Um, but maybe I would be a bit hesitant to put these books in the hands of someone who's brand new to Christianity. And you might disagree with me, Father Wes. I think that these books, for me, I see them serving a great purpose of someone who's, who's in the faith, who's been catechized, who knows the basics, but maybe needs a, that, that unique perspective, needs to be reinvigorated of how the ancient faith connects with the modern world. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's fair. I think I would still probably give at least the volume on the Lord's Prayer, I would still probably give that to um, a fairly new Christian or someone who is seeking um, and, and that may be, it may be specific to the various volumes, but, um, even if there's some, you know, bones that may need to be spit out at different points, I mean, there's really no book that I can think of that wouldn't have something like that, that I would, you know, be giving to, to people. So I don't think that any of the things that I might push back a little bit on, and these are so egregious as to, um, warrant, you know, censoring them for other people. Um, but you know, there are some things that, that, you know, you just, we might disagree with a little bit with the authors and I think that's okay. And maybe even healthy. Sure. Yeah. One of the things that really stood out to me in both volumes is just amazing how much the church fathers were quoted and used. Yes. yes. It's just, it's, it's becoming more common to have this resourcement and popular level of the church fathers. And you see it here, you could put into someone's hands, coming new into the faith or kind of re reigniting their faith for the first time in their life. And you were just smothered with the fathers, which is phenomenal. And this book, the one on the Apostles' Creed in particular, another point that I really appreciated was how gospel-centered it was. Everything that Ben Myers talked about came back to Christ and Him crucified, which I guess the little slice of Lutheranism inside of me always loves that we're always pounding the gospel, gospel, gospel. Um, And so there was just incredible, great biblical theological themes used to support the arguments through the fathers to the gospel. And then best of all, I found that this Apostle Creed's book was was sacramental, uh, as well as Wesley Hill's book. And it wasn't so much a defense of the sacraments, it was just a given. Hey, guess what? You know, baptism is is your entrance into the church and the Eucharist is the meal that feeds you. You don't there wasn't a sense of like it should be. It was just this is the way the church has always done it, which I think is brilliant. And I think too it's good for people like us uh, to read those kind of books because, you know, both of us coming into Anglicanism from other traditions, 
I think sometimes we can be, at least I know for myself, I can be a little bit defensive when it comes to the sacraments. Like I have to go provide a dogmatic explanation of why the sacraments are what the church says they are uh, every time I talk about them. But we don't. We don't have to do that. I mean, we, we need to be able to teach. We need to be able to explain why. But um, week to week, we don't have to get into that kind of apologetics mode for the sacrament. Rather, uh, we can be painting a very beautiful picture of a sacramental life for people. And I think that's a much more persuasive, beautiful, and helpful way uh, for people to hear us talk about the sacraments. Yeah, and I think that's what these books do. They just place the sacraments in the midst of the Christian life as a given and as a means of God working in your life, which is which is really the way the fathers talk. They don't really defend the sacraments very often. All right, so Myers, let's jump into this book. Myers sets his study of the Apostles' Creed fully in the context of the ancient church. It's the baptismal creed used to renounce the ancient pagan world, which was either polytheistic and or Gnostic, which in some ways is still polytheistic. And so throughout the book, he shows at every corner how the creed rebuts these false religions of the ancient world. But... That doesn't mean that the work is irrelevant, as if this the, the book really applied 2,000 years ago. Uh, he, he uses the ancient context of pagan Rome to shed light on our own culture, because after all, aren't we in essence just living in pagan Rome 2.0? And so, for example, he pushes against modern individualism by highlighting the creed's uh, instinctively collective nature. But I, I thought it was interesting. He does this kind of a bit backwards of what you might think. He says that the church was very intentional in writing the creed to say, I believe, not we believe. That change into we believe was something that that a lot of people will push today in kind of liturgical reform for the sake of let's be collective. Let's be all together united. But he says, no, no, no. The I speaking in the creed is Christ. And he speaks through his one unified body. So actually having the singular pronoun doesn't give you into, doesn't give into individualism. It actually unites you intimately through Christ with your neighbors. You both say the creed. And then he also shows, and I think we've said this on our podcast a couple of times, that Gnosticism is alive and well today in our world. And he, and so he has this great quote where he says, uh, Gnosticism solves the problem of evil by turning everything into evil. And then he'll flip it and say, kind of the flip side of that in our world is everything is good. The way he puts it is this idea of like, there really is no moral evil. Everything is good. It's relativism. He, that's just the flip side of it. And so he uses the ancient context where the creed was written applies it to today and shows that really there's nothing new under the sun. So I did think, though, that it, this idea of constantly trying to see in the creed modern application, just a few places, I think it was taken a bit too far. It, it, at times, I thought it sounded like a pastor who's preaching a sermon and trying so hard to get an application out of a passage when there really isn't one. So example, he, he the chapter where he talks about Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate, he, he just he, he goes so hard to make this point that all of Jesus' life was really one giant offering of suffering up to the Father, which it is a giant offering. It is his life as a sacrifice from conception all the way to ascension. 
I just don't think that's what the creed is getting at when it says he suffered. I think it's very specific. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's talking about the crucifixion. So he tries to see all of Jesus' life in that one word, suffer. Uh, Not sure that's there. But he does have some amazing passages that I thought were just beautiful. And I can imagine someone who somewhat knows the faith or is new to the faith reading these passages. These are the types of things I would want them to know about the Christian faith. So here is his comments uh, on the phrase in the creed, died and was buried. He says, Christians confess that the death of Jesus is the turning point of history. The New Testament authors have many different ways of describing the meaning of that death. Through his shameful death, Jesus attains the highest honor, Philippians 2. By succumbing to mortality, he makes human nature immortal, 1 Corinthians 15. His death is the world's life, Romans 5. It is the darkness that illuminates, the judgment that does not condemn, John. It is a defeat that ushers in God's sovereign reign, Mark. It is a termination that inaugurates a new epoch in history, Luke Acts. It is a fulfillment that totally surpasses what was promised, Matthew. It is a sacrifice that dissolves the entire sacrificial system from within, Hebrews. It is a violent catastrophe that triumphs over the violence of human history, Revelation. And so right there in that short paragraph, he just paints this beautiful picture of the cosmic scope of Christ's death. And then I love the way that he explains the atonement. He says the idea, meaning the atonement, is not so much substitution as mutual participation. God and humanity are perfectly united in the person of Jesus so that each partakes of all that belongs to the other. That's, that's a sacramental understanding of the incarnation, of the atonement, of what's going on. And then one of the other places where I see him putting on his, um, his apologetic hat, speaking to a culture that's post-Christian, is when he gets to the, the part in the creed where Jesus will come back and judge the living and the dead. Ooh, judgment. That's one of the hard things that modern minds do not want to wrestle with or grapple with, that God is part of judgment. But listen to this. I think this is beautiful. This really, really stood out to me. The confession that Christ will come as judge is not an expression of terror and doom. It is part of the good news of the gospel. It is a joy to know that there is someone who understands all the complexities and ambiguities of our lives. It is a joy to know that this one, the only one who is truly competent to judge, is full of grace and truth, John 1.14. He comes to save, not to destroy, and he saves us by his judgment. Yeah, that I, I could, I can think of someone who's wrestling with the Christian faith, listening to this, and hopefully going, okay, at least he's thought through it. That that makes sense. Judgment is is actually a comfort. It's part of the good news. Now, the one place where I'll end my kind of review is is this is a critique, and maybe it's just because I want everyone to be Catholic, Anglo Catholic. But when he gets to the part in the creed about the Holy Catholic Church. I just think he strikes out. And I think that it's not even he's showing kind of a more Protestant side of, of ecclesiology. I think he's, he's showing maybe a uniquely evangelical side of, of ecclesiology. And I, I don't actually even know um, Ben Myers. I don't know his denomination. I don't know what he's a part of. But he says here that each local gathering of believers is a full expression 
of the mysterious Catholicity of the church. And, and I just think with all the patristic references and theology that he would have in this book, that he would have presented a more sacramental, big picture understanding of the church, of Christ's body in the world as be, spanning throughout the ages. Uh, he never mentions ministers. He never mentions uh, the liturgy in this sense. So I just think that there was... I was left wanting when it came to ecclesiology. So that would be one of those places, if I gave this to someone to read as part of their catechesis, I would say, I'm, we're going to have to do some serious follow-up about what is the church and what does it mean that it's Catholic. Hmm. Well, so I'm doing uh, The Lord's Prayer, A Guide to Praying Our Father by Dr. Wesley Hill, who is an Episcopal deacon, I believe he was recently ordained, and right. uh, is the Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity School for Ministry in Pennsylvania. Um, and so <clears throat> I found this book to be very helpful and very beautiful um, and well-written, most like everything that Wesley Hill has uh, ever written, really. Um so his argument is that in giving us the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus is teaching us how to pray simply without the ostentatious style that the Pharisees would have employed, something that I think a lot of people pick up on. Um, you know, the story of the, uh, of the publican and the um, Pharisee always stands out, you know, thank God I'm not like other men. Um, so we can get away from that style of prayer, Hill argues, because God doesn't need our prayer, right? God doesn't need anything that we do. Um, and so um, the efficacy of the prayer isn't based on our stylistic flourishes, but on God's action. Now, uh, you know, we did an episode recently on why elevated language is important in prayer. But if you notice, none of our arguments were that somehow God hears us better when we pray a certain way, um, as, as far as the language that we use, um, but rather that it's good for us to use that kind of language. It, it helps develop and form us. So I actually don't think that's in contradiction with what Hill is arguing here. Um, and, and, you know, I've been in context, especially being raised in an evangelical uh, world. Like when I started at Liberty, I was a pastoral leadership major with a bunch of other guys, you know, who wanted to be mega church pastors. And at the beginning of each class, the professor would ask a different student to pray. And over the course of the semester, the prayers got longer and longer and longer and more eloquent. And it was like, you know, each week you had to up, you had to um, outperform the person who had prayed before you or something like that. So uh, it's an important reminder, I think, that that the way one prays is not what makes the prayer um, efficacious, but rather it's entirely God's action on behalf of the praying person that makes it effective. So I'm actually reminded by the collect for the 12th Sunday after Trinity, which says, Almighty and everlasting God, who art always more ready to hear than we to pray, and art want to give more than either we deserve or desire. So even in that collect, we're acknowledging that very fact that when we come to pray, God is already ready to respond to those prayers. So according to Hill, Jesus gives us the Our Father, where the underlying picture is a God who is eager, indeed delighted to hear our prayer. Um, and I think that um, we've talked a lot about participation uh, in the past, and I think that's one of the reasons why prayer is so important, is he's delighted because when we are praying, we are participating with him, which is also why prayer is really more about shaping our wills to match his will than trying to envision him like a slot machine in the sky where we put a couple coins in, pull the lever, and get out what we want. 
However, um, prayer is deeper than that for Dr. Hill. The prayer um, that our father serves as such an effective template uh, precisely because the petitions of the prayer are Christocentric. So Hill um, draws from New Testament scholar Dale Allison here, who says Jesus embodies his speech. He lives as he speaks and speaks as he lives. So, um, for example, in the larger Sermon on the Mount, like the Beatitudes, uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Beatitudes, right? And then because he's the fulfillment and because Christ shows us what it means to be human, we also ought to be poor in heart or poor in spirit, meek, you know, things, things, those list of things. Um, Jesus lays out the law in the um, Sermon on the Mount, for example, as well. Well, Jesus in his life fulfills the law, right? So um, all of these, all of his teachings, particularly in the gospel, according to St. Matthew, are about himself first and foremost. And then because of that reality, they apply to us. So uh, another example in the gospel of St. Matthew that, that sticks out to me is the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? A lot of people read that parable as an ethical call to action, right? You ought to go out and find the person who's been beaten, you know, and, and take care of them and go the extra mile. And so you as a Christian should be a Good Samaritan. Well, that's not untrue. It's not the main point of the parable, though, right? We're the man in the parable who's been beaten by sin and the devil. Christ is the good Samaritan who comes and rescues us. And there are a whole lot of other allegorical interpretations you can read into that story that are really beautiful. Um, The innkeeper is St. Paul, for example. The two coins are the Old Testament and the New Testament, etc., But because Christ is our good Samaritan, then it does function as a call to action for us to be like Christ for other people. Um, And so uh, so it's not that the ethical readings of these texts are wrong. It's that if we go straight into the ethical reading of the text, we miss a whole layer of Christocentricity. And so what I really appreciate about Hill's work here is that he tries to bring that Christology back to front and center, right? Christ is Christ not only shows us what it means to be divine, he also shows us what it means to be fully human. Um, and so because of those things, I, I really appreciate um, the Christological t- twist on the, on the Our Father. The Our Father is a portrait of who Christ is. So the structure of the book is fairly straightforward. Um, Dr. Hill follows the, um, follows Christ's structure of the prayer, offering short reflections on the invocation, our Father in heaven, uh, the seven petitions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. Uh, And then he talks about the doxology for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And at the end of the book, uh, he has a beautiful chapter he calls a coda, uh, where he talks about praying the Our Father with Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal son, which is just a really cool um, extrapolation. I won't, I'm not going to talk too much about that one because I think you should just go read it because it's so good. Um, There are two uh, kind of parts about the book. Uh, that I wanted to delve into a little bit more, um, kind of sort of positives and negatives mixed together. Uh, so the first thing um, is at the end of the introduction, Hill talks about uh, gendered language in the prayer. Um, and this is an interesting um, 
this is an interesting subject for me. Um, I'll read real quick what Hill says because it's just a paragraph. He says, a brief word about translation and inclusive language. I have chosen to use the English language liturgical consultations 1988 translation of the Lord's Prayer as the primary text that I will comment on here. But I will also reference the familiar King James Version, How Could I Do Otherwise?, as well as other newer versions, such as Sarah Rudin's Arresting Translation. I will also reference on occasion my own reading of the Greek versions found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. I have also decided to retain masculine pronouns for God throughout, though I explain at the end of chapter 1 why this must not be understood in a literal way as if God were male. I also follow the time-honored practice of capitalizing divine pronouns, he, his, in part of to signal my belief that while he may appropriate our masculine language for his self-communication, God transcends our creaturely categories, and we should not suppose that God's employment of our language is anything other than analogical. So, I thought this was an interesting, um, an interesting aside that he adds to the prayer, and I think in the context that you mentioned, Father, about um, how these are really sort of um, apologetic in so far as they're engaging a post-Christian culture, it's certainly understandable why he would feel the need to address this. And you do see this. I mean, there is a pragmatic component to gendered language within Scripture. Like when Paul says, uh, you know, I write to you, brethren, uh, you know, does he only have males in mind or does he also have females in mind as well? So some modern translations which choose to add, you know, brothers and sisters there. I don't think that's necessarily wrong, um, but it is interesting um, in the sense that, uh, and I think he's right, we don't understand the father who the prayer is addressed to as sexed, right? He doesn't have a body, and so he's not biologically male or biologically female. Um, and so God has chosen to use this analogical language by which to reveal himself, and I think Hill is right to retain that um, out of respect for his self-revelation, um, but we have to be careful not to think of the Father as male. Now, Christ is male, obviously, because he took on a physical human body, but I think he is right um, to, to, to point this out, that God sort of transcends our creaturely category of male and female. Male and female together in the garden are both together a reflection of the image of God. Um, and so it's important. And in fact, one of the prayers, and I, I would love to talk more about this sometime, uh, St. Anselm has a prayer to St. Paul uh, in, um, in one of his books. And he calls Paul mother, which he uses because Paul talks about giving um, his congregations milk uh, as a mother would. But he also calls Jesus his mother and God his mother uh, throughout the prayer as well. Today, we wouldn't probably condone doing that in a modern church service. But in the context of how what Anselm is doing with it, I think it's really beautiful and something that you can only really do if you fully appreciate this idea that God transcends our creaturely categories. So he also uses this as a positive by pointing to Sarah Coakley, um, the theologian. He says that theologian Sarah Coakley has insisted that feminists not only can but must call God Father in order to help the church see that patriarchal interpretations of God's fatherhood aren't at all the best readings of what the Lord's Prayer is about. By adhering tenaciously to the conviction that the true meaning of the Father is to be found in the Trinity, Christian feminists today may, through praying the Lord's Prayer, teach the rest of us why it isn't a charter for male domination. 
And I thought that was an interesting quote because it actually made me think about the episode that uh, I did with Father Sean McDermott a while back about um, the subordination of the son. And I think we have to be really careful with some of the arguments that he was making. Um, But one of the things that we did conclude kind of together at the end of that episode is that whatever masculinity is, it can't be a sort of um, dominating feature uh, where um, where other people are exploited because of it. Right. If anything, from the testimony of Scripture, what we see is that uh, fatherhood, God's fatherhood is characterized by self-donation. Right. The father did not even spare his son for us. So he, the father, in a sense, is is giving giving the son. And then the son is mutually submitting to the father. Right. The father's will, not mutually. He's submitting to the father's will. Um, so, you know, leadership or, or maleness or whatever it is that we're talking about when we talk about these categories. And we may disagree a little bit with Dr. Hill on some of the finer points in that discussion, but whatever we're talking about here has to be characterized by a kind of cruciformity that involves self-sacrifice. So that's the kind of thing that husbands are called to, I think, in Paul's letter, um, because he's supposed to take care of his wife as Christ has taken care of the church, sacrificed himself for the church. And the wife is called, you know, into submission to the husband in that same passage as well. Um, but but it has to be a sort of mutual and cr- uh, centric um, kind of submission. Yeah, and I think this is one of those places where Wesley Hill is doing what Ben Myers did in his book, and that is everything is read through the lens of the gospel. These books are both very gospel central, and so for, for Dr. Hill, as you're saying, everything comes back to Christ and Him crucified. The Lord's Prayer, the language, the ideology, everything within it. And so I think that's a huge positive for the book. Um, I did find uh, in, in his book that he was a bit more situated in kind of this, um, in a progressive context and not always just defending it. Like I believe, I think you're right. If you're going to write a book of kind of an apologetics catechesis of the faith to a modern culture, you better address, if you're talking about the Lord's Prayer, you better address why God's a father. Like that's really important. But there are other places where it wasn't so much a defense. It was more just, in my opinion, an interaction and an acceptance of kind of I would just call it more progressive. Maybe it's not full-blown, but more progressive ideology, uh, theology. I can remember, I think it's in the chapter about thy kingdom come, where the notion of kingdom coming was was almost, well, it wasn't quite, but it was almost equated to kind of social justice work rather than the kingdom being the proclamation of the gospel within us, kind of Luther's bend in his small catechism. Yeah, I, I, I agree that there is a sort of bent there, but I think that... Like that quote that he pulls from Sarah, or where he talks about Sarah Coakley, I actually found that to be a pretty productive and constructive engagement. So he's not like, like we might do an episode, like our social justice episode, right? We did kind of step back and um, not deconstruct, but we did attack certain facets of what we call the social gospel. But we also tried to extend that yes as well. Where can we say that they're you know, doing something right and, and what is the larger truth that needs to contextualize uh, what they have right? And so I think that um, I think that Hill is still 
on the right track here, even even if on some finer points we might push back a little bit. But I, I think that that's a fairly constructive way to do theology. You know, he's he's not attacking feminism, but he is saying here is a here is an um, a thing that feminists can teach us if they understand, you know, if they're reading the prayer correctly. So yeah, and and I and I think the this particular issue, the language, the feminism concepts, I think he does do really well. I guess I was referencing some stuff that you you didn't bring up that's in the book. That would just cause me to perhaps be, maybe even more so than you, a bit more reticent about putting this book in the hands of a, a like a neophyte, a fresh convert. Maybe give them another catechism, and then this can be kind of 2.0 of how to go deeper and deeper. So I found the book challenging and refreshing for my own understanding of the Lord's Prayer. And it came at a good time. I had read a book with Father Sean McDermott. It's one in the popular patristic series mm-hmm. on the Lord's Prayer. And it has three treatises by um, Origen, Cyril of Alexandria, and Tertullian, all of their teachings on the Lord's Prayer. And then I read this one, kind of a modern version of those three patristic treatises. And so just to compare and contrast, I found his to be in line a lot with the patristics, but at these places where it really kind of broke from the tradition, it was both challenging, but sometimes sometimes a bit uncomfortable. And maybe that's a good thing. I think so. I think it is a good thing. So, and actually speaking of that, uh, being a little uncomfortable. So uh, one thing about Dr. Hill that I like is that he's, I mean, he's incredibly well-read. And he's also very um, friendly to the reformers and not just Luther, but Calvin and some of the other ones as well. So, uh, you know, if you listen to this show for any extended period of time, you probably have ventured to guess that Father Miles and I are not big fans of John Calvin uh, really at all. Um, However, uh, there (laughs) was one there was one chapter in the book that I found very arresting. Um, and it's the one on forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And so in the chapter, he begins by kind of talking about, um, a friend of his who visited the Episcopal church and pushed back against the prayer of confession. Um, and I've heard that same pushback and we talked a lot in our, um, in our episode on the sacrament of confession about answering those kind of objections. In order to answer the objection here, though, he starts with St. Augustine of Hippo and traces his thought for a couple pages. And then he gets into the Protestant reformers who are worried, um, who were worried about uh, kind of the opposite error of um, overscrupulosity. Right. So um, obviously Luther has this problem. And um, so then he turns to Calvin's exegesis of this part of the Lord's Prayer. And I actually think Calvin does a pretty good job. And that may be the only time, hopefully, that you'll ever hear me say that. Uh, but here's what uh, West Hill says. I'm just going to read. It's about a page or so. Um He says, John Calvin suggests that there is another way to read the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. That's against the um, a conditional interpretation that you have to go forgive everybody before God forgives you. In the lovely exposition that he provides in book three of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin points out the problem we've been discussing. We must note that this condition that God forgive us as we forgive our debtors is not added because by the forgiveness we grant others, we deserve his forgiveness as if our forgiveness indicated the cause of God's forgiveness. Calvin had been gripped by the Pauline insight that God's forgiveness is never conditioned by our actions to say otherwise. On the contrary, we are made capable of forgiving others through God's having first forgiven us. The order is crucial. As Paul wrote, be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has already forgiven you. So, says Calvin, we must look for another way to understand the Lord's Prayer. By this word, the Lord intended partly to comfort the weakness of our faith, for he has added this as a sign to assure us he has granted forgiveness of sins to us just as surely as we are aware of having forgiven others, provided our hearts have been emptied and purged of all hatred, envy, and vengeance. In other words, Calvin says, Jesus isn't offering a condition for our receiving God's forgiveness, so much as he is offering an illustration of what God's disposition toward us is really like. Think about the times when you have actually extended forgiveness to someone who hurt you. Remember the stirring in your gut when your spouse or your sibling brokenheartedly acknowledged the way they were in the wrong, the way they neglected you, humiliated you, or stabbed you in the back. Recall the surge of compassion that you experienced when you said out loud to them, I forgive you, I don't hold this against you, and it's not going to keep me from continuing to love you. That, says John Calvin, is what Jesus wants you to hold in your mind as you pray to God to forgive you because God's forgiveness is that wonderful, only more so. I thought that was good. That was beautiful. Yeah. So, you know, Calvin gets some things right every now and again. Every now and again. We'll throw him a bone on this one. That That's right. Great. Yeah, well, very good. Well, there you have our, um, our reviews for what it's worth, which isn't anything because we didn't sell them. It's our reviews of the books. We should probably say a thank you, too, to uh, Lindsay Kennedy, who's the, um, the person at Lexham Press who reached out to us and sent us these books, too. So yes, thank you. Yes, good. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and thank you just to Lexham Press for producing beautiful, well-written books that are actually trying to contribute to the re-evangelization of this of this culture. So I'm, I'm grateful. And we'll have in the show notes links to the books. We encourage you to get them, read them, tell us what you think about them. You can post on our Facebook page. We can have more discussions about them. I think that there's a lot of nuggets in these books. We've only just skimmed the iceberg, so to speak, the tip of it for what this, um, what these books have to offer. So let's talk about what we're into. Father West, what are you into? So, uh, a couple episodes ago, I think it's a confession episode, we did, uh, we both said fountain pens, so I'm going to continue that, uh, what we're into a little bit. And last Sunday, uh, I f- went to the Baltimore, Washington pen show. Uh, so I found, I found them on social media somehow, or they found me actually. I, it may have been because I was talking with some listeners about fountain pens and they said, well, you should come to the Washington Baltimore fountain pen show, which is about 15 minutes from where I live uh, at the Marriott outside the BWI airport. So uh, last Sunday I said mass at church and did everything that I needed to do left and uh, picked up a friend and we went to the Baltimore Washington pen show and walked around and there were probably, I don't know, 30 to 50 booths of people selling fountain pens and inks and all kinds of uh, stations and uh, so yeah so I bought an Echo Twisby uh, and uh, my friend bought a, a pin as well and I also bought my wife a pin a pin a Kaweco Sport uh, that's very pink and uh, so I hope she'll like that I'm trying to get her into it as well but she's a little bit more reluctant than I am and I, I also bought two pads of stationery by the company Rodia and they're really good stationery. So I really like the tablets that I bought uh, from them. So anyways, another nerdy uh, what we're into, but uh, it was really quite fun to go to that uh, show. 
And I would be lying if I didn't say I was a bit jealous. Next year you should fly in. We can go together. Just for the pin show. My we could, goodness. We could do, do they we sell could, pocket protectors as well? They should. We could do an episode from the pin show. You know what I'm into is... <laughs> I mentioned earlier that I read through books with Father Sean McDermott, and then we talk on the phone once a week and discuss them. Well, we just decided that our next series, we're going to read the three, I think only writings from the patristics on the uh on pastoral ministry and so we've already started reading through gregory the great's pastoral rule then we'll read john chrysostom's six books on the priesthood and then we'll finish up with gregory of nyssa's defense it's a sermon just one-off sermon flight a defense of his flight to pontius he was kind of ordained uh forcefully and then he ran away from the congregation and then he comes back and Understandably, they were a bit upset at him. And so his first sermon is defending why he ran away and has to do with the weight of the pastoral office. So I'm really excited about this. I've done some study in seminary about what the classical tradition of Christianity thought about the priesthood and an understanding of holy orders and the great calling it is. But I feel like it's good now, having been in this ministry for, you know, going on five years, to revisit these things and, and kind of refresh my commitment to living out a holy calling and, and, and doing it well and understanding that the burden that comes with it is a good and joyful burden, but it's still a burden and how to balance that burden with family life. So just thinking through ministry and approaching it as the Lord would have me. And I think these works will, will do that for me. Wonderful. Well, great. Well, dear listeners, if you like what we're doing, we hope that you'll help others find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. If you want to continue conversation with us, please follow us on Twitter or join our Facebook group and let us know what you think, especially if you get your hands on these two editions, these two books by Lexham, then definitely let us know what you think. Or if you've read any of the other books by Lexham, we'd love to have conversations about those. And definitely stay tuned because coming up soon, I'll be having an interview with Dr. Peter Lightheart. Because he's written one of the books about the Ten Commandments for this Christian Essential series. So more to come from this series and from Lexham Press. And as always, you can email us with your feedback or show ideas at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. Father, will you bless us? Absolutely. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen.